This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and it's time to get up and crank out a podcast. And what a good one it is, because on today's show, we're talking about debt. When is any debt good debt, if at all? Personally, I'm hoping it's all good. To help us discuss this topic from the Money Manifesto blog, say hello to Lance Cawthorn. And from the Afford Anything blog and podcast, it's Paula Pant. And from LenPenzo.com, it's... It's... Eh, I'm too lazy to come up with anything clever today. It's just Len Penzo. Whatever. Plus, thinking about buying rental properties? On today's Friday FinTech segment... We'll talk to one founder about how his app, Nest Egg, helps little landlords like you and me compete with the big kids. Of course, we'll also magnify a lucky listener's money, and you might get some of my trivia if I'm up for it. And now, a guy who needs to bring it down a couple notches, because we're trying to sleep over here, man. Joe Saul C.I. Bring it down. It's Friday. We're going to bring it up. We're going to blow this place up. Is that what is that what the kids say? I don't know. Hey, everybody. I am Joe Salci. Hi, Average Show Money on Twitter. And we're going to have some fun today because joining me again from the deserts of Las Vegas, it's Paula Pant. 
I am in the middle of the desert. It is unusually nice right now. The highs are in the 80s, which is unheard of in June in Las Vegas. Normally, the highs are in like the 108s. So it's great weather. I'm, I'm happy. When you first started talking, I thought you were saying that you were incredibly nice today. I'm incredibly nice today. <laughs> I've decided today is the one day of the year that I'm going to be nice to people. I'm going to be great. I'm going to talk to a stranger or two and maybe even Joe. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, but, let's not go too far. I'm not like <laughs> yeah, well, interacting with other humans. Yeah. Whoa, whoa. Easy on that. Well, a guy who you can interact with if you take out your shovel and you dig deep under Los Angeles, Paula, it's Mr. Len Penzo back for more. You know what? I am just the happiest guy in the world. You know what? I, I became a millionaire today. I put everything on Hertz. Uh, they went bankrupt and I uh, decided to buy some stock and the, tr the stock in three days has gone up uh, seven times. Who knew? It, it went up once and it went back down. Then it went up again and went back down. <laughs> like the dead cat bounce thing it does when a stock goes bankrupt. Is that the deal? You act like you don't know. Do you not know? I do not know. I must be. See, you know, Hertz went bankrupt, right? Yes, I'm. Mm -hmm. in, I'm in. Movie. And clearly, I'm kidding because if I if I did become yes. a millionaire on that, I, I wouldn't be here right now speaking with you, Joe. <laughs> no, Hertz went bankrupt. The yes. stock went down to seventy cents. Yes. Don't ask me what people are thinking. They ran the price up over the last three days to six dollars and fifty. This is a bankrupt stock. It's a queue after this. It's six dollars and fifty cents a share. Well, you know how that happens. I mean, maybe not $6.50, but you know, a lot of it is short interest and they're all chinging the cash register, Len. I mean, very seriously, <laughs> that's what happens. Yeah, there's nothing left to short. Yeah. I tried it. <laughs> We're going to short it again. I promise. I sort, yes, I tried short. You can't. There is not, there are not, there, you cannot short the stock. <laughs> so everyone that's out, is, is out there is being shorted. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. And the guy who feels like he got shorted because he has to hang out with us on this podcast. It's our good friend Lance Cord from Money Manifesto. Man, you're finally back. I am. It's only been like, what, five years or something? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I realize, Lance, if I ask enough times, sooner or later, you'll get annoyed and you'll finally say yes. So I'm glad you finally came. Well, thanks for having me, Joe. Well, tell everybody about the Money Manifesto, the three people that don't know what you do over there. Money Manifesto is uh, another personal finance blog, and I aim to help people master their finances so they can live their ideal lifestyle through paying off debt, spending smarter, and saving and investing. You have, it's funny, had a lot of financial transitions yourself. You were in the area that got hit by the hurricane, right? Yes. Um, I used to live in Panama City Beach, Florida, and we got hit by a Category 5 hurricane, Hurricane Michael, in uh, October 2018. Thankfully, my house was fine, but uh, we decided to move anyway, and now we live up in Indiana, just outside Indianapolis. <laughs> is, that, is that because you looked at, like, where hurricanes might hit in Indianapolis didn't make the cut? Well, now we're about to get the remnants of whatever this tropical storm thing is, so apparently I did it wrong. It just apparently it follows you. Yeah, a lot of your neighbors, though, when you were in Panama City, learned a ton about insurance during that time. That was horrible. Yes, that was very depressing. Hope you never have to make a hurricane insurance claim when everybody else in town has to do the same thing. Uh, yuck. Well, we're going to talk about a different hurricane on your family family finances called debt. I'm just Mr. Transition Ninja today, aren't I? 
We're going to talk about good debt versus bad debt. So let's get the party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins headlines. Today's headline is a blog post from the Hope and Sense blog. The woman who wrote this piece, Alea Lenton at Hope and Sense, has been on the show before. She's a fantastic story herself about getting her financial house in order and paying off a lot of debt. And today we're going to feature a piece that she wrote about debt. And here to help us, our celebrity reader for the day. He's the man behind thecollegeinvestor.com, Robert Farrington. What's the difference between good debt and bad debt? There is good debt and there is bad debt. I'm sure you've heard that before. The idea is that if the debt is going towards an asset, that will appreciate, increase in value. Then that is good debt. If it's going towards something that will depreciate or lose value, then that is bad debt. Mortgages and business loans, good debt. Car loans, credit cards, bad debt. That's what they say. Many people place student loans in the category of good debt because the theory is that by investing in your education, you will reap the benefits of a higher earning potential, and you'll pay those student loans off lickety-split with the awesome income you'll be making at the fabulous job you'll get right after graduating. That is the theory. But there is a problem with categorizing debt as either good or bad. In fact, there are a few problems. Problem number one, we confuse what we're investing in. We throw the word investment into the equation, and that complicates things. We say taking out a mortgage or student loans is an investment in our future, but we get that wrong. The education is the investment, not the student loans we take out to pay for the education. The home is the investment, and even that is debatable according to Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad not the mortgage we use to buy it. The business venture is the investment, not the debt associated with it. We need to separate the investment from the debt. We talk about them like they're the same, but they're not. You can pursue an education and purchase a home without debt, albeit challenging. So we need to be clear about what the investment is. I recently bought a home with a mortgage. After seven years being 100% debt-free, I am now back in debt. But I don't see the mortgage as an investment or as good debt. It's just debt. And I hate having a home loan just as much as I hated having student loans, a car payment, and credit cards. Problem number two, good debt has no guaranteed returns. Another problem with seeing good debt as an investment is we act as if the investment of debt has guaranteed returns. Unfortunately, that is not the case. There is no guarantee that a business will succeed. There is no guarantee that a student who takes out student loans will A, complete their education, B, get a job in the field that they studied, or C, remain in the field to justify the debt. There is no guarantee that the house I bought will appreciate. Sure, the value will likely increase over time, but that isn't a sure thing. And because home values fluctuate, it certainly isn't a guarantee that the value will be higher at the time I choose or need to sell. 
Talk to anyone who needed to sell their home after the 2009 recession about counting on increasing home values. I've shared how I had to short sell my house after the crash for roughly half what I paid for it. Sickening. We do ourselves a disservice by playing up certain types of debt as an investment. Purchasing stocks is an investment too, but there is a reason stock market loans aren't a thing. Sure, someone somewhere has borrowed money to invest in the stock market, but the risk of going that path is very apparent. Many people instantly recognize it as a bad idea. There is risk in good debt as well. Problem number three. We give debt the green light as long as we can say it's good debt. The decision to borrow money is personal, of course. After experiencing how debt robbed my freedom and dictated my professional and personal choices, like when to have kids, for many years, and after taking the two-year journey to pay it all off, I committed not to borrow money again except for a mortgage. I'm not here to convince you to do the same, but I do want to warn you about the dangers in compartmentalizing debt as good or bad. When we do that, we give borrowing money a thumbs up as long as it falls in the good debt column. We then justify poor choices, like purchasing a home before we're ready, because after all, a mortgage is good debt. Or we send our kids to colleges we know we can't afford because it's an investment in their education and they'll be able to pay off those loans within a year of graduation. Or many other choices we make all in the name of good debt. Once we go down that path, we end up on a slippery slope and starting saying and believing things like taking out a car loan for a particular make car is pretty much good debt because those cars hold their value. Spoiler alert. No car holds their value. Debt is debt. Good debt versus bad debt is not a new debate. This is simply my take on it. Debt is not an investment. Debt is debt. The house, the business, the education, the whatever is the investment, not the debt. Don't confuse them. Thanks, Robert. Great job by Robert. Go check out The College Investor. He just did a fantastic piece himself, by the way, not about debt, but about uh, 529 plans. So if you're looking for 529 plans, go to the college investor. Len, let's start off with this idea of good debt versus bad debt. Do you come down where she comes down that all debt's probably bad? No, no, I, I don't. I'm one of those people that believes in good debt and bad debt. I guess part of the issue I have with her thesis she says that we believe that good debt has to be related to an investment. And I think what she forgot is not all good debts is strictly about investments. It's also about utility. So there are some things that you have good debt for that you might not be buying because it's an investment, but because it has it provides utility, especially something that's huge that you can't buy, you can't save up enough for uh, early on in your life. I'm thinking of a mortgage or, for example, maybe a business. So I think that's the first error in her thesis. Good debt does not just mean, you know, you're buying something for an investment. It's also utility. Lance, do you agree? I think for a lot of people, most debt is bad. If you have a lot of self-control, there can be types of debt that you can take advantage of and leverage to further improve your financial situation. But for... The average person, most types of debt are only going to cause you pain. 
But what about this idea of of debt as an investment? So debt as an investment is just something that I think a lot of people have a problem with in general, just defining investment. People will say, oh, uh, why don't you go invest in a good pair of shoes? That's not an investment. That's spending money. People really need to remember that investments are assets. And if you're using debt to buy an asset that will appreciate in value, it can be good. But you're also weighing yourself down with that debt. So unless you have a plan in place before you take out the debt, you really need to be careful. Agree, Paula? I definitely agree that investments are assets. Like the debt itself is not an investment. The debt is a tool that allows you to acquire an investment. And I don't like the phrasing of good debt versus bad debt because that takes on a a moralizing tone. Um, I would prefer to frame it as reasonable debt versus not recommended debt or unreasonable debt. And I also think that simplifying our conceptions of good versus bad or reasonable versus unreasonable based on categories is insufficient. Because let's take business debt, for example. There's a difference between business debt that you take out in order to fund daily operations versus business debt that you take out in order to fund a major capital expenditure. So for example, if you need to buy a forklift for your company and you have to take out a loan to buy that forklift, but you take out that loan because you just received a, a contract for a big project and that project requires a forklift and so you need a you know you've got this contract in hand but you need the forklift like that's a major capital expenditure for the company and I think that's very very different than taking out a loan to fund daily operations to pay your staff. She says that even when it comes to the forklift though she says that the business ventures the investment not the debt associated with it and a lot of people confuse those too. Yeah, exactly. The debt itself is not an investment. It is a tool that allows you to access investments. It's funny because when you said you don't like it being characterized as good debt or bad debt, I always, back in the day, Paula, when I had lots of debt, I characterized it one of two ways, either as, yeehaw, we're all going out and having fun, or, oh, crap, we're staying at home. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. good debt was whenever I could spend some money on a credit card to go out and have a good time. (laughs) Good times debt. (laughs) It was great debt. Yes. Hot wings. Bet. <laughs> when we talk about leverage, though, Len, it seems like, you know, when you originally brought this up and you were talking about good debt versus bad debt, going back to the characterization Paula doesn't like. But when you talk about good debt and using leverage, it seems like there has to be a level of education that comes with that. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I mean, especially when it comes to stocks. Right. I mean, that's one of the worst areas that people get into trouble with. They'll they'll go into debt. They'll take out a loan for ten thousand dollars, and because and, and, they got a hot stock tip, and you know, hopefully the the idea is, hey, gee, I'll use that debt to buy the stock, and then the stock's going to go up, and I'll basically, you know, use that as leverage. But if the stock goes down, now you're doubly in the hole, right? So you've got to, you really have to know what you're doing before you do ever do something like that. Yes. So that debt, that debt is called margin. Paul, is there ever a time when you would recommend somebody use margin in a brokerage account? No, never. Not at all? Not at all. Simple answer. Lance, you? I would never recommend using margin in a brokerage account, but I recently did something that is a little bit different. I just bought a house and sold my old house. And when I bought the new house, I only put 20% down. 
and I took the rest of the equity and I've been investing it. Thankfully, I sold the house at the end of February, so it's been working out pretty well for me. But, you know, timing's not always perfect. The market could have gone down too. But I invest in index funds and I'm in it for decades. So sometime in the next 20 or 30 years, it would have been higher, most likely anyway. Let's walk through that decision though. So you could have put down more than 20% on that house. Yes, definitely. And instead you decided not to, and you invested that money. Walk me through that decision-making process. My wife and I went back and forth on it a lot. It ultimately came down to, did we want to pay our mortgage off early or not? We decided that because we got a crazy interest rate right around 3%, we would rather invest the money in a taxable investment account. And then if we want to pay the mortgage off later, we sell the investments and pay it off, you know, over the long term. Getting 8% isn't unreasonable in what we invest in. And when we're only paying 3% for the money, as long as we have decades, which we do with a mortgage, it'll most likely end up on the good side for us. So that's kind of how we walk through it. So you did that specifically because you wanted to pay off your mortgage quicker. We have the option to. I'm not saying we're going to. If I'm still down the road making 8% and my mortgage is still 3%, I'm not paying it off, you know? But because you're in index funds, the 8% isn't, isn't guaranteed. So at what point do you decide to pull the trigger and go ahead and pay off the mortgage? If we decide to pay off the mortgage, it will be when we decide to work less and we need to cut our expenses. Until that point, there's no point in paying down the mortgage unless we can pay it off in full because the payment will be the same unless we refinance. Money nerds like the four of us hear Lance's strategy all the time, Len. What are some downsides on Lance's strategy that people need to consider before they decide to put down less on a house and invest the money? Well, if you put down less on a house, the issue is if the price of that house drops, you're going to be upside down a lot quicker. So you might want to uh, rethink that. So that, that's probably one of the biggest things about not putting down as much on a house. But Len, he's got the money sitting in funds, right? He's got this money sitting in funds that he could take and use to fill it in if the house goes underwater. Okay, if you have the money, then then that's great. I mean, then like I'm with Lance then. It all depends on what he, you know, as long as he's re- getting a return higher than the interest rate on that loan, then I would, you know, I think, that's great what Lance is doing. Now, the other the other side to that is I'm doing the same thing. I'm holding on to my mortgage. I'm not paying it off either. That's because I think the dollar's depreciating faster than my ridiculously low interest on my uh, mortgage. So I'm letting the I'm letting the de- devalued dollar help pay off my loan faster. So that, to play uh, devil's advocate with myself, though. If my real estate investment has gone down, chances are my index investments have also gone down. Yeah, good, but like 2007, 2008, that time frame. Exactly. What are some other risks, Paula, that uh, people should think about using that strategy? I'd say the biggest risk is behavioral. It's easy to tell yourself, yes, we will take the equivalent payment and put it into index funds every month. But will you actually do that? And the answer to that really depends on automation. If you set up an automated process so that the whole thing happens via software and you don't have to manually do it, then it's more likely to happen. But if you don't set up the automation, then it's you're unlikely to carry that out for the long term. The other risk is that you might end up rating those index funds like because they're more liquid, they're more tangible, they're easier to access. There's a temptation to rate it for inadvisable purposes at any point. 
isn't it amazing by the way how 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 smart our brain is that when money's locked away in a house, we know that that mortgage process is very difficult. So we decide not to rate it, but man, the second that, so, so our house is about to sell and I can already feel the fact that I'm going to have all this money sitting there that wasn't sitting there before. And Cheryl and I keep going, you know, we probably could, well, we could, and we, we remind ourselves of all of these, all these <laughs> discussions. We're like, no, no, we're not going to do it. But immediately my brain goes, it's time for the sizzler buffets on me for everybody. <laughs> I will remember that when I come visit you. <laughs> I, I can see a lot of people doing that. They'll go on these huge vacations and they'll say, hey, okay, well, we've, we've just got uh, this half million dollars in our pocket now. Let's, what's $40,000 for this around the world vacation or what have you? You know what I'm saying? You yeah, kind of lose, uh, you kind of lose, yeah, you kind of lose perspective there. It is crazy how much our brain is about, you know what I could do that money today? Do all kinds of all kinds of fun today. I want to skip right down to this problem number three, Lance. We'll start with you on this one. She says we give debt the green light as long as we can say it's good debt. Do, do you get judgy about your debt? Well, this is good debt, so I'm okay with that. I think good debt definitely makes it easier for people to feel like it's a all right type of debt to get into. But one of the biggest problems is student loan debt when kids in college have no clue what they're getting into. My wife got a four-year nursing degree, and when she graduated from nursing school, she had $80,000 of student loan debt. Part of that was because she went during the financial crisis, and the only way for her to finish was to get some crazy high-interest private student loans. But it's good debt is only good if you use it correctly. It's not always good debt. You know, Lance, as you're talking, I start thinking about it's impossible to talk about debt without thinking about people like Dave Ramsey and Dave Ramsey saying there's no such thing as good debt at all. Paula, what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, is that, does it depend on the audience or is Dave wrong or is Dave right? I disagree with Dave. I think that it's okay to take out a reasonable amount of debt, particularly if you are using that debt for either a home, like a, a reasonable primary residence or a rental property. Or if you are taking it out as, as student loans or for your education, the rule of thumb is that you should borrow no more than what you expect your first year salary out of graduating to be. That way you can contribute 10% of your entry-level salary per year and have it paid off in 10 years. So I think adhering to certain limits around the amount of debt that you take off is advisable. But yeah, so I, I disagree with Dave that all debt is bad. You know, debt allows you to access those programs or uh, enter into those investments that you otherwise may not have been able to. Why is this audience so big then? Uh, well, I think a lot of people struggle with debt. You know, a lot of people, it, it's a slippery slope. You start charging a few things to your credit card and then a few things more and then you unexpectedly get laid off or it's very easy for debt to spiral out of control. And when that happens then naturally a person who wants to solve that is going to look for a role model who is able to walk them through how to pay off their debt. And Dave Ramsey has done an incredible job with helping people, millions of people, pay off their debt. Is it maybe, Len, I guess to use an analogy here around graduation time or just after graduation time, that maybe it's healthy to start with a Dave Ramsey approach and graduate versus the opposite? 
Well, yes, until you have mastered or control of yourself or control of your finances and, and lost that uh, lack of ability to control your spending, then I totally agree with that. But once you have that mastered, then I totally, I mean, to me, it's the good debt. There is always, I, to me, taking a loan for a business, buying a home, a first home, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you've done your homework and you understand what you're, you know, you're buying these things for good purpose, for utility reasons. The college thing, I really have an issue with now. I don't consider that good debt at all. I think everybody should do a return on investment analysis before they take out student loans. You know, I, I heard Paula, I think Paula said the rule of thumb today is only borrow what you make in your first year mm -hmm. once you graduate. And I'm just thinking back to when I went to school back in the day, back when college was reasonable. I spent for four years of my college room, board, everything. That was ended up being one half of my starting salary as an engineer back in the 80s. So, I mean, that just shows you how wild college prices have, have gone. And that's why I think people should be very careful before taking out a student loan. Did you walk uphill both ways to those classes? Uncle? <laughs> <laughs> I know I sound that way. You know what, Joe, you're, you're very close to my age. You got you people out there listening as you get older, I'm sorry. You can't help yourself. <laughs> you just have to, you can't help yourself from sounding this way. <laughs> <laughs> Start hearing the older people in your family come out of your mouth and you're like who the hell am i becoming i mean when i was younger i used to say what the hell you know spare me old man but now i'm the same <laughs> way you can't help it <laughs> grandpa's got all these stories yeah let's uh just put a lid on this well and actually before we do that len uh nope let's go to lance actually lance before we <laughs> psych <laughs> i did a head fake there <laughs> Lance, let's talk about one other type of debt that we see is is pretty popular in financial communities now. People talk about this all the time, churning credit cards and playing the points games. Where do you come down on that type of debt? Uh, I do it, so I'm all for it. But the difference is I've never paid a penny in interest to a credit card company. If you ever carry a balance and pay interest or you carry a balance thinking you'll pay it off with a 0% promotion, you're just asking for trouble. If anything goes wrong, you're going to end up in the hole. So you just have to be really careful. Paula, this is one of the few things I don't know. Do you play Do you play those games? I do. I'm not as into it as uh, some of the, the more enthusiastic travel hackers. I mean, there are people who really make it a hobby, make it a, a part-time job even. Um, I'm like travel hack light. I might open up two cards a year, three cards a year. So I'm a, I'm a very low-key version of it. But I... I love it as long as you are not carrying a balance month, month over month. Can you tell us a story about the first time you opened a credit card? Yeah. So my very first credit card I opened when I was in college, it would say United Mileage Plus College Plus card. The reward is half a mile per every dollar that you spend free, no annual fee. And I still have it. It's still open. I don't use it because the rewards on it are terrible. But I keep it open and I make very small, like $5 a month worth of purchases on it. Actually, I think less, you know, less than that. It's $2 a month. I, I have a Patreon subscription that's on it for two bucks a month. So that keeps it active. And so my average, my, my oldest account age, which factors into your credit score and, you know, helps improve your credit score. My oldest account age is very old now, thanks to that card. 
you send $2 a month to your favorite polka band? I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Len, let's put a lid on this thing. I guess, what's your big takeaway? Well, my big takeaway is I disagree with this article. <laughs> I, think there's the good there's, I think there's good debt, there's bad debt. It's not all about investments uh, and whether you're, the debt you have is uh, going to have a return on investment. There's also something called utility, and utility is very important, especially when you're younger. You can't, um, you can't save a huge amount of money up front, but you need something like to start a business or a home, then that is good debt. Well, I agree with you, but I think that you, there's a know thyself thing because there was a time in my life, Len, where no debt was good debt. I could show you all the math and I was definitely a broke professor. I would do all the math. I'd seemingly do the right thing. And then the second that I took out the loan, I'd find a way to mess it up. Yeah, that, let's just say I, I will say I agree with you. Yes, it all depends on the person. You have to be able to control yourself. <laughs> and I definitely <laughs> you have to understand. You have to know how to manage your your money and know what you're getting into first. Yeah, all cash lifestyle for me worked way better back then. Paula, how about you? Takeaway. Uh, yeah, I guess my takeaway is I also disagree with the article, and I would just say to anybody out there who's listening, um, I would not moralize your debt. The debt is neither good nor bad. It, it just is. And similarly for you, like you're not a good person for not having debt. You're not a bad person for having debt. You know, like, let's take the moral judgment out of debt. It's interesting, Paula. The reason I think Alea does that just from her appearance on the show, mm -hmm. I think she moralizes it for herself. I think I think the moral judgment for her is she couldn't handle any debt. And maybe that's some negativity that maybe she, some judgment she doesn't need in her life. But um, but I would guess not to put words in Alea's mouth. I think that's why she makes it a moral thing. Hmm. Lance, you've got the last word, my friend. What's our takeaway? I think when it comes to debt, it's easiest to make sweeping judgments because you don't know who's reading. Um, I think it's a decision you have to personally make based on how you know you'll be able to handle the debt. If you can handle it, there is good debt and bad debt. And if you know it's just going to cause problems, all debt might be bad debt. It's not yes or no. It's It depends. Whether you're a landlord or you're somebody who's renting, you're going to love our next guest. Joachim Fletcher has a company called Nest Egg. And on today's Friday FinTech segment, we're going to dig into how they work because uh, some of the innovation happening that helps the little landlord work and operate like the big fish in that area, super compelling. And I wanted to hear more about it. So Joachim Fletcher said, let's do it. So let's dial them up on the shortwave. And on my dad's shortwave, let's talk to our new friend, Joachim Fletcher. How are you, man? I'm doing super well. Thanks for having me on well, the shortwave. Well, I'm so happy to talk to you and I hope you're safe and healthy. One thing very interesting, my son and my spouse, very intensely interested right now in getting into rental real estate, and mm -hmm. that is precisely what you do. So where sometimes I'm very excited to talk to fintech people 
because I just love the space for you. I'm interested on a much more, much more, uh, intimate level, but how Uh did you get started? Are you in, in rental real estate yourself or did you see an opportunity? Yeah, that's exactly how I got into it. I uh, used to be the CTO at Expedia, uh, and my co-founder, Jeff, uh, he used to run marketing. And while we were working there, we recognized, I guess, uh, much like your wife, sounds like a wise lady. We recognized the the value that rental properties can have in terms of long-term financial security. And so we were both investing in real estate ourselves and sharing our pain, you know, when we bumped into each other around the office. Then we, we just got to talking about how there just has to be a better way to do this. We couldn't find any, any products out there that helped us the way that we felt like small independent rental owners needed help. So we decided to, to quit our day jobs and join forces and, and build the product we felt the market was missing. Let's talk about some of those problems that people in real estate have that weren't being addressed that you guys are trying to attack and help people with. For sure. The two big problems when you are early in your real estate investing career are really the time crunch and the cash flow crunch. Managing a a portfolio, even a relatively small portfolio, three to five units, it can take a couple of weekends a month. Um, When you throw in dealing with a vacancy, doing showings, even just just maintenance issues that come up all the time, 2 a.m. phone calls, contractor tag forever, trying to schedule stuff and chase down invoices and PDFs and and payments. And it's really time consuming. And that's tough for people, especially people we felt like in in our segment, it was people like us who have busy day jobs, families, they got other stuff they'd rather be doing, but they need to invest some of their time in this again for their their long-term financial future. Um, So that's a time crunch part. And the cash flow crunch is another interesting one. And, and we feel like that's where what we've been able to do as a platform is, is uh, alleviate some pain for everyone involved. So, so not just landlords and uh, rental investors, but also the tenants. So you have this problem where um, right up front on the first is when all your loans and expenses and everything tends to come out. But you're typically not getting your rent cleared as available funds in your account until maybe the fifth, the seventh, sometimes even later than that. And so every month, small independent landlords have this kind of week-long cash flow crisis where sometimes they have to top things up out of their personal savings. And then you also have really spiky maintenance costs. You know, I mean, when, when exactly is the garage door going to break down? When exactly is there going to be a leak under the kitchen sink? I mean, you don't know. And being prepared for those can be tough. And so uh, those are the two big things that we've taken off the table. And so our landlords typically go from spending a couple of weekends a month on their portfolios down to minutes, just minutes a month, even with 20 plus properties. And uh, we give them game changing cash flow advantages that allow them to actually spend more time and money growing the portfolio and acquiring those other units instead of just operating what they've got. Which is great because I think about my son actually is the lead in this thing with Cheryl, my spouse, but the two of them together, a lot of times they're competing when they're, when they're bidding on houses against the big boys. And really Mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff you're talking about takes somebody like Nick and Cheryl and helps them compete against the big boys more. Well, that's how we looked at the space, you know, and um, when we uh, we first started taking this seriously and asking ourselves, are we just really bad at this or are there a lot of other people like us? And, you know, we realized there was there was 12 million small independent landlords out there who are struggling with these same challenges. 
and uh, you know trying to grow their portfolios. And you're 100 right; they're competing with large real estate corporate entities who have scale advantages in in operating the portfolios they have, and they have major financial advantages in more rapidly acquiring the supply that comes on the market. And so we looked at that space and realized no one has a good solution for these guys, you know. And so let's build that solution and let's let's help these subscale landlords gain the advantages that the big scale guys have without having to have two thousand units and a whole team, right? Like we yeah. can beat that scale for them. Yeah. We well, let's dive in, Yak, into how it works then. So I'm at the site right now, a nestegg.rent. Is that where I start or is it an app? How do I get on the platform? What do I do? Yeah, we got both. Um, best place to start is to go to www.nestegg.rent. Check it out. There you can create an account. Super easy and super quick to get started. Uh, just throw in the addresses of your buildings, put in your tenants, mobile numbers or, or email addresses, and we take care of everything else. You know, then the product Within the product, you'll choose uh, how you want to manage your units. Your tenants can uh, communicate with you through our platform. Uh, we take care of. Uh, so let me let me kind of walk through the big use cases of what we take care yeah, of. Yeah, uh, great. Yeah, I made some bold claims at the beginning, and now I'm prepared <laughs> to back them up. Okay, here we go. Uh, so I told you about how we take your management overhead from from a couple of weekends a month to minutes a month. So how do we do that? So primarily through automation, our platform deals directly with tenants through a chatbot. Um, so the tenants who download our app, they get onboarded, they have access to a, to a residence center with your brand on it and, and your name on it. Um, you know, so makes gives you a fancy system like the big guys have. And then uh, through that fancy system, they can report maintenance issues or ask other questions. That goes through to our team and our technology platform. We fully diagnose maintenance issues so that let's say you have that uh, leak under the sink or whatever, we'll figure out what's going wrong, what needs to be done about it, and how much it's going to cost. And so when you hear from Nest Egg about a maintenance issue, you don't just hear about a complaint from a tenant. You know, you've got a fully diagnosed issue with an action plan right there for you to approve. And so you, you just tap approve, and then we take care of the end-to-end -end solution. So we will take care of uh, scheduling time with the tenants, finding the right contractor, getting them in, getting the issue resolved, producing a, uh, an expense report for you, and uh, everything that we do through our marketplace has our 14-day happiness guarantee on it, where if for whatever reason you or your tenant aren't happy with how that ended up, we'll do it again at our cost. Uh, that, that, so, uh, I've got about 67 questions about that, yeah, <laughs> about that piece alone. You talk about fully diagnosed. Is that because before I get involved – you're talking to the tenant a few times, asking them more pointed questions about actually what's going on rather than just a drip under the sink or whatever it might be? Correct. Yeah. So so we have a, a data set of 400,000 maintenance issues that have, that have happened in the past. And so what we're able to do is use that information and uh, triangulate between that and what we're hearing from the tenant ask some follow-up questions. So let's take that little example we did with a leak under the sink. You know, we'd, first we'd find out you know, is it the kitchen or the or the bathroom? They told us it's the kitchen. We'd say, is it coming from the faucet or the drain? Let's say they say the drain. We then need to know if there's a waste disposer involved or, or, or just pipes. You know, they tell us. You know, and then based on those answers, we know exactly what needs to be done, how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take. And we have contractors in our network with pre-negotiated discounted rates that we can dispatch to resolve it. 
And so if you compare what you would get from a traditional property manager or, a, uh, or, or some of the more lightweight apps out there, you're just going to get almost like you're, you're typically just going to get a message. Hey, here's something your tenant's saying there's a drip under the sink. Yeah. And then you got to take all those conversations on. You then got to go and call a bunch of different contractors, try and find who's available, try and find where they can get in there. So we take all that phone tag and all that worry off the table with one little tap. That's interesting because if I don't go out there with the contractor, even if I get the contractor myself and I send the contractor out there without me going out there, I didn't even know that the contractor fixed what the real problem was. So the chance that they're going to fix the actual problem is much, much better. And I probably lower my average cost for the visit because mm-hmm. of the fact that I started off with what the real problem was, I would imagine. Yeah. And we gather uh, before and after photos and, and all that extra context and part of all that extra data and uh, that extra time we spend with the custody resident up front. That's what allows us to send the right person to do the right thing first time. You know, and that saves contractors a lot of time. That saves the landlords a lot of money. Everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, and, and the tenant gets it fixed too. I mean, the tenant's happier yeah. too, because it's fixed right away. You don't have to send somebody out five times and disrupt their life. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes people underestimate how important that is in combating occupancy, right? So if your tenants feel like whenever there's an issue, someone's there, they're taking it seriously, they listen, and then it's resolved quickly. Well, I mean, not only are you doing a better job of looking after an asset that is fundamentally going to you know, increase its, its, its value of time, you, know, you are re- increasing the retention of that tenant. And then at renewal time, you're increasing the likelihood that they're going to want to renew and that you're going to be able to gradually keep the rent at pace with the market, all that other sort of stuff. You know? And, and uh, when you don't provide a good, I guess, level of service, you could say, about to, to a tenant, you're in a situation where maybe you're looking at, you know, a month to six weeks vacancy every 18 months or so. Um, you know, that's worth fixing a sink a little quicker, you know, just, just to keep that income flowing. Well, and I think too, Yuck, and that when, when, when I was 24, like my son is, you know, people would look at me and they'd say, well, how old are you? Which was the first thing, uh, uh, right. you know, I didn't, I, I didn't seem very professional. It's a way for my son too to come across as incredibly professional with this tenant versus some 24 year old kid that, you know, your 40 year old tenant has thinks uh, is never going to solve this problem. Yeah. So listen, Joe, um, when I tuned into your frequency on, on grandpa's wireless, yes. uh, I, uh, I realized the show is called stacking Benjamins. So, so I think, I think we need to talk about some Benjamins Yes, because um, I think, I think what we do to help landlords increase their income and, and improve their cash flow is probably the thing that you're going to be most excited about. So there's two big things there. Number one, how does rent payment work on our platform? So uh, we are the only platform that you can use to manage properties where you get paid your rent in advance. So through Nestegg, we pay you your rent upfront as available funds in your account on the first. So you have your rent before anything else happens that month. And then your tenants have the flexibility to pay us any time throughout the month. Um, and we don't take a cut for that. We don't take a percentage. You get 100% of your rent on the first, and that allows you to get ahead of all the cash flow stuff throughout the month. Your tenants can pay us. They can pay in installments. Uh, they can pay on credit cards, debit cards, uh, automatic uh, ACH. And then at the end of the month, let's say 
something goes wrong, as it, as it does on rare occasions, especially at, a time, at times like this, and they don't pay in full by the end of the month, or we also provide an insurance policy that provides that income for you for a further four months. So in the worst of case, case of scenarios where you've got to go out, find a new tenant, you're still continuing to earn 100% of your rent for up to four months to cover that gap between tenants. Wow. So in the, in the, uh, yeah, I'm trying to wrap my head around that because, because well, one of the main reasons I know people don't go into real estate is because they, you know, you worry if your tenant misses a couple payments, things are tough or, or pays late, right? Tenant yep. pays late. Um, and yep. you got loans to cover, you got other expenses. Yeah. Does the tenant get charged more if they pay in installments or they pay later? No. Nope. They can pay any time throughout the month through any method completely for free. Which also makes you more attractive to renters then. Yeah. I mean, I, before we started the show, I was, uh, I was talking about how we felt like we were, were helping to, to make relationships between renters and, and owners more constructive too. Um, and we see a strong desire in, in newer landlords to, to do something more win-win with tenants. You know, And they, they don't just look at it as an investment and their financial future, they, they look at it as investing in their community and doing something that's also meaningful. Yeah. And, and so by doing that, especially if you're dealing with tenants who, let's say you're dealing with a tenant who gets a disability check, right? That, that tenant's going to get their money on about the 14th. So they really want to pay mid-month, but all your expenses come out on the first. So you really want to get paid. Now, if you go on any other platform, one of you's got to take a hit, right? It's got to go one way or another. Yeah. But with our platform, we allow both of you to get what you want, win-win, and we feel like that's just a, a better way to run properties. Wow, which which brings up uh, two other questions. How are you able to do that for free? And then number two is, then how do you guys get paid? How do you make money? Yeah, so we charge a, a flat fee of $9 per month per unit for everything we do. Um, so that's how we get paid, that's how we make money, and that's why we don't need to take a percentage of the rent uh, you know, we don't need to charge fees to tenants. We never charge fees or add on any extra convenience fees or, or transaction fees. Uh, we don't charge call out fees for anything on the maintenance side. So you pay a direct, transparent, discounted hourly rate for all the maintenance work that you get done on the platform. Wow. I can just see the amount of work you put into that. Yeah, I can. <laughs> it was a lot of work. So there's one more thing I want to mention sure. on, on the cash flow side, because this is has turned out to be a, a real superpower for us. And it's really helped a lot of, uh, of landlords out during this crisis. We also allow you to spread the cost of maintenance events over a number of rent income payments, right? So if you need any maintenance done at, at a unit and you do that through Nest Egg, you can either pay in full using the credit card you have on file with us or you can say, you know what, I want to spread that over four or six or whatever rent payments. So if you get a $400 repair done to a garage door, we can take $100 per rent check out of your next four rent checks instead of the whole 400 all up. So that's interest-free credit in a way. Interest-free. Right? And, and uh, yeah, and that's that's how we take the sting you know, out of the unexpected bigger maintenance jobs. And that allows our landlords access to more of their cash to help grow their portfolios more rapidly because they don't have to kind of keep as big a rainy day fund. There's no scary big maintenance jobs that are going to kind of creep up and, and really hurt that, that and they, they don't have to top it up at some point throughout a month. Uh, the uh, site, it's uh, nestag.rent. This is, mm -hmm. it's, it was 
absolutely fascinating learning about it today, along with, I'm sure people that are out on their walk, I used to say on their way to work, but no, but everybody's kind of working for a moment now. (laughs) But people that are, uh, I'm sure listening like me, it's incredibly intriguing and uh, fantastic work just putting it together. Nesteg.rent, we will link to it in the show notes, by the way, on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Yakin, thanks for hanging out and talking nest egg with us. You I got really it. appreciate you it. Do. Appreciate it. Hey, trivia fans. It's Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And you know, I think I finally have a spirit animal. And uh, it's the guy having his birthday today. One of the richest cats in history. Garfield the cat. Ever since I finished that laundry list of chores from a couple of days back i've been living in freedom i mean just laying on the couch and eating the world's greatest snack food cheetos and uh binging all of my favorite shows i mean this is the life now if only like garfield i also had some lasagna to chow down on but that'd be awesome i'll see if i can get joe's mom to work on that for me but before i do here's today's trivia question on this date in history, I mentioned that Garfield the Cat was first published. Well, what year was it? I'll be back with your trivia answer. And, you know, like when I feel like it, kind of, I'm just chilling out right now, really. <laughs> Look, you get it when you get it. Just deal with it. All right, for those of you that uh, are new to this show, you may not know that we're doing a year-long exciting competition between... Len, Paula, and normally be OG. And Lance, today you're playing the part of OG on the show. You haven't been salty enough, Lance, to be OG yet. So (laughs) you're going to have to notch that up a little bit, my friend. I'll work on it. (laughs) He's like, shut up. I am salty enough. That would have been. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The score here is Len has eight. OG slash Lance today has eight and Paula has six. Paula, that means you get to do the honors, my friend. Do you want to guess what year Garfield was first published first in the middle or last? I will guess last. All right. And then Lance, do you want to go first or in the middle? I'm going in the middle. I need to hear what Uncle Len says. (laughs) (laughs) So Len, what are you thinking, man? Well, I remember reading Garfield when I was a kid. I'm, I'm almost positive of that. So that's got to be in the 70s for sure. But I don't know much more beyond that. I'm going to say 1974. 1974. Is that the year Columbus sailed the ocean blue? Isn't that the way that goes? <laughs> no? <laughs> yeah. Lance? Well, this can go one of two ways. So I'll take one side and Paul can take the other. I'll do uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll take uh, 73. You're kidding me. Oh, my God, Paul, if you say 75. <laughs> well, um, double Chelsea Brennan. Well, I don't think it could. It was after that. So I'm going to take 1972. Lance gets trapped. Wow. Trapped in your own game, Mr. Cohern. (laughs) The regular contributor ninjas. (laughs) Get the guest of honor. We played dirty. (laughs) Like, 
This is no holds barred. Boxing gloves are off. This is why Paula Lance didn't come back for five years last time. I'm just saying. We might not see him for a decade now. All right. We got our answers. We would tell you uh, who's right, but of course, we're going to make you wait for it. We'll be right back. Welcome to a new segment we call The Money Minute with Rachel. I'm Rachel, a certified money coach. My mama said I'd never get this job because that time they repoed my car. But who said you have to be good with money to be a coach? Not me. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so let's get down to those little brass tacks. Do you want more money in your life? Do you? Today, I'd like to help you concentrate on saving more money. Ready? I knew you could. Just like my daddy told my brother when he shot out the TV, if your aim is straight, you'll hit it every time. Look at you. You're now a money-concentrating pro. And yes, before you ask, I am certified. I got it from the Southwest Bahama State University and Technical Institute Internet Degree Program. See you next time. Len, you guessed first with 1974. Man, the way that that actually worked out in your favor. You get everything after 74. Yeah, no, yeah, I, no I, I think Paul's got this wrapped up. Lance tried to play some dirty pool and said 73, and you got uh, <laughs> you got dirty pooled. Or maybe I just didn't want OG to take the lead. <laughs> <laughs> There's the salty answer. And Paula, you got 72 and before. That's that's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, that's anywhere from like the year zero to the year 1972. Well, and I'm sure Garfield was around like year zero. Totally. I can just imagine the Romans cracking up over Garfield and <laughs> lasagna. All right, let's uh, let's get back to it. Doug, what's our answer, man? Hey, trivia fans, Joe's, you know who it is. And I don't know about you, but my weekend plans are just packed. Let's see, uh, you know, there's, uh, let's see, uh, there's waking up at 10. Uh, then I need to peruse Facebook for like uh, five or ten a while and then i gotta make sure to give a shout out to the basement facebook group that's probably gonna happen like noon or one and i found an entire series i'm gonna binge and then i found a taco shop across town i'm gonna try if i can roll out of the couch by then it's gonna be exhausting and frankly a lot of work just get off my back about that but before i go make Final preparations for the weekend. Let's get back to today's trivia, shall we? The question was, on this date in history, Garfield, the cat, was first published. What year was it? Well, Garfield has the Guinness record for the world's most syndicated comic strip, and since it started its initial syndication run with the Universal Press Syndicate, Garfield's peak appearance topped out at 2000. 570 newspapers in 2002. God, that sounds like a lot of work. And it all began way back when? In 1978. Well, I gotta say, that was exhausting. There's all that information I packed in there and all of those words I had to say. I gotta go take a nap. Whoa! 
Wow. Paula could have taken the other side. Lance gave it to you. I know, right? <laughs> I figured Garfield was much older than that. Yeah, very, very young. But it's also, I guess it's, I guess it's nice to, uh, no, that's actually not nice. Say, man, you look older than that. <laughs> In the case of a business or a comic strip, it is because essentially it's saying, I figured that you are so classic that you would persist for generations. You're timeless. You got some gravitas. Yes. Yes. So, uh, Lance, congratulations, by the way. I'm making sure OG didn't win. (laughs) (laughs) I do my best. Checks in the mail, Lance. (laughs) (laughs) Good work there. Hey, let's take out the magnifying glass and help somebody do better with their money, guys. Today's hotline call comes to us courtesy of magnifymoney.com. When you go to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnifymoneylance, you know what happens? Lots of fun things. <laughs> it's just a giggle fest because you find all those financial products that your brick and mortar bank use every day, nowhere near the best in class. Over 92% of all the financial products available online ranked at Magnified Money, whether it is student loan refinance, Now you can look at all different. We talked about credit card debt. You can clean up with consolidation loans, do a 0% interest transfer. If you do play the uh, reward game, and you only want to do that if you play them, if you make sure, like Lance, that you pay them off in full, you can also evaluate those checking accounts, savings accounts, CDs, all at magnifymoney.com, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash magnifymoney for more. Today, we're going to go back to, I like doing this lately because I asked some of these questions on Twitter and I like getting your responses also, guys. I asked this, what's the best advice for couples you have who aren't on the same page about money? Your best advice, if you know a couple and they ask your opinion of um, how they get on the same page about money. Let's go to, I've got one single person and two married people. So I'm going to go to the single person first. Mm-hmm. Paula, what's your best advice for couples not on the same page? I would say have three different accounts. Have yours, mine, and ours. Um, this is an idea that I, I originally got from Farnoosh Tarabi that I think is absolutely fantastic since Farnoosh writes a lot about couples' finances. By virtue of having a shared account that is ours, like that account allows you to pay for joint purchases together, like your home, your car, your utilities. But by virtue of each person also having their own separate accounts, they have a bucket of money that, you know, they don't have to have every single item greenlighted. Like if there's something that one partner wants that the other partner thinks is frivolous or ridiculous, that doesn't have to be a fight. Because as long as the partner who wants it is paying for it out of their own money, then, you know, the other partner can't say anything. And so I think that having those three separate accounts can um, help couples avoid a lot of fights. It's interesting because that is completely contrary to, we talked about Dave Ramsey earlier, the the advice Mm -hmm. that his group gives. Because if you have those separate accounts, you might start hiding money from each other. Yeah, I, I absolutely disagree with that. Because if everything goes into one pooled bucket, then if there is a disagreement about something that, you know, let's say there's a $500, someone wants to buy a $500 set of golf clubs or a $500 handbag, and the other person says, no, absolutely not, that's ridiculous, it turns into a fight, resentment builds, one person feels like their partner is trapping them or not letting them be who they want to be, you know, the other partner feels like, their more spendy partner is acting in counter to their long-term goals. Like, pe- So both sides then get resentful of each other. 
it's like a disaster um, that could easily be avoided if each person had their own personal bucket of money. No, but wait a minute. But if you come home with the golf clubs, isn't there going to be a fight anyway? No, not if each person has their own separate bucket of money, because that bucket of money is like yours versus mine. And you can't comment on each other's bucket of money. Like that's, hey, that's your money. You do what you want with your money. I do what I want with my money. And then this bucket over here, this is our money. And then the hour money you can contribute to either as a flat rate or as a proportion of your income. Len, is that the way you guys do it? No, but uh, you know what? I'm going to do Paula's idea now because uh, the honeybee's a stay-at-home mom, and I think that is absolutely perfect. Yours, mine, and ours. Perfect. <laughs> Nobody's laughing. That's a joke. Think about that, folks. <laughs> think about that. I was just going through the math there. <laughs> you just have to fill all three buckets. That's that's my that's my biggest my biggest problem with that solution is what do you do if you have two uh, the couples where one is that there's a huge disparity in earnings mm -hmm. that model tends to break down. I think so. The, the way that some people handle that is that the stay at home spouse, quote unquote, earns a portion of that paycheck that is then considered theirs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can just see the negotiations over that. <laughs> My advice is don't get married. <laughs> I am serious as a heart attack. I, unless you both earn something very close to, you know, and you can pull something off like that, I find somebody else. There's plenty of fish in the sea. I, honest to goodness, I think the two biggest things people argue over are sex and money. And uh, why I go into a marriage with uh, one of those two right against you at the very beginning. I know it's old man, Len, but no, uh, well, yeah, that's how I feel. Uh, it actually is interesting, though, Len, that you say that because we had uh, we actually had lots of people say that. On Twitter, uh, uh, Snapperhead on Twitter said, get on the same page or end it now. Nothing but aggravation is in your future. So totally, totally agreed with you. My kids, I'm serious about it. I, I told my kids in no uncertain terms that is that is number one. Make That's sure short. your spouse has the same spending habits as you. What's interesting, Paula, that I don't disagree with you. Uh, Cheryl and I use a similar method, but what we do is it all goes into one bucket and then we have our quote allowance that goes into mm -hmm. X amount. And then we can't, you know, because back in the day when we <laughs> see him doing the old guy story thing, Glenn, I'm breaking <laughs> up. I was, I was not in my head. <laughs> I, was, I just, I can't help it. You're right. But back when people had DVDs, remember those days? <laughs> Cheryl would always come home from the grocery store with a DVD that she's going to watch once. And I'd come home with a board game and she would get upset about the board game and I'd get upset about the DVD. And so uh, we decided we had an allowance system and man, it, it, it just, it solved all of it. I came home with a board game that was from my extra money, you know, and then we also have fun with it sometimes where I will take her out for dinner with my allowance money or she'll take me out for dinner. So we'll have, we'll play with it. It's uh it's pretty fun. Lance, wh what's your advice? I think that to a point I agree with Len and to a point I agree with Paula Thankfully, my wife and I get along and it's not a problem. We keep all of our money in the same accounts and we talk about things before we buy them. And thankfully, we haven't had a lot of fights about it, but that's because we have similar spending patterns. But if you have separate buckets, yours, mine and ours, 
you really have to make sure that hours bucket is pretty large because if you have one spouse who wants to save to retire early and one spouse that doesn't want to save anything to retire and thinks they're going to work their whole life, you're just going to run into major problems down the road. I think the allowance system can definitely work because it's not large amounts of money. But if you have people with very different incomes and you have yours, mine and ours, even if you contribute different percentages to a joint account, there's still going to be some sort of resentment. So I think ideally you talk about it before you get married. And if you are already in a relationship and you're having money issues, whoever wants to make the money changes, try to think of something fun that the other spouse likes to do and try to start with something small that you can both agree on and then build from there. If you go into it in a fighting attitude, you're not going to get anywhere. What about the idea, a few people brought up a Catholic personal finance brought up, get external counsel from somebody you both trust. This personal service mediator can help you get on the same page. Paula, you like that idea, some premarital counseling? Yeah, I love that idea. Absolutely. Both before marriage as well as regular check-ins during marriage. Our friend L from Couple Money. Of course, if there's somebody who might be an expert at this, it would be Couple Money. Might know something about it. Right. I like what she says. She says, skip with the numbers and start with your dreams. Find one you're both excited about and start there. Len, I really, I really like that because I think it comes successful marriage comes to uh, comes down to communication anyway. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. I have seen communication in your family. She communicates, and you say okay. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it comes down to the old saying, right? What's hers is hers and what's mine is hers. And then yes. everything's okay. That is. And people think we're joking. <laughs> uh, no, we're not. Uh, <laughs> our friend Deacon Hayes from the Well-Kept Wallet says, set a common goal that you both want to achieve. This will help it be more about working together than apart. Uh, thanks to everybody who weighed in on this. Is it some really good stuff? I'll keep having those over at uh, Every Show Money. That's going to do it for today, guys. Big thanks for playing along. Let's start with, we'll have our guest of honor go last. Uh, Paula, what's happening at the Afford Anything podcast? On the Afford Anything podcast, we have, of course, every other episode is one in which we answer questions from the audience. And on half of those, this guy named Joe Saul Seahigh joins me. We are also doing something unusual. We are replaying an interview that I did on another podcast. So coming up on the Afford Anything podcast, you're going to hear an interview with me. Meta. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Tim, by the way, on uh, Twitter, pinged you and I both and said that listening to you and I answer questions was like listening to an episode of Stacking Benjamins without anybody busting your chops. <laughs> <laughs> said I re he said he really enjoyed it. And it is fun, but we don't get to talk about your lack of... Um, Pop culture knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. We don't get to do that on, on your show. You throw out these obscure references. Like, how am I supposed to know who Bob Hope is? Right. <laughs> Where the hell did you get that? <laughs> that that's, like, that's like five years ago we did that. That was fun. Uh, Len, Len, what's happening over at the crazily titled LenPenzo.com blog? I know. Isn't that funny how I, it took me forever to come up with that? Um, I am discussing, and we kind of hit upon this today, actually. I go into my decision. I have a 30-year mortgage, 
and I have refused to lower that to a 15-year mortgage, and I go into the reasons why. I still insist that a 30-year mortgage is better than a 15-year mortgage, regardless of the difference in interest rate, within oh, reason, of course. Awesome. And, and I like it when people work through that math, and you can find the math at lenpenzo.com. Lance, thanks for coming back. I'm sorry that they did that to you during the trivia. I hope you don't hold it against me. It was <laughs> He did that to himself. <laughs> what are you talking about? I guess wrong. What can I say? <laughs> What's happening at Money Manifesto, my friend? I am in the process of reviewing some credit services where you can get free credit scores and oh. some cell phone plans so you can save some money on your cell phone bill. Awesome. And that's it, Money Manifesto. And we'll have a link at our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. That's going to do it for today, guys. All right. Uh, Doug, you've got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Oh, God. Seriously? You woke me up for this? All right, fine. Well, if the rest of you were awake, uh, you probably know what you should have learned. But for everybody else as motivated as me, here's what you should have learned. First, take a lesson from our headline. Just because you've always heard things like a mortgage and education are good debt, it doesn't mean those investments will pay off. Uh, it's a good idea to be wary of all forms of debt. That is not good news for me. Uh, second, take a lesson from Aiken Fletcher at Nest Egg. Looking to get into rentals but feeling overwhelmed? Well, there are lots of tools out there to make your job as a landlord much easier. Um, probably if, like, if you rewind and listen to that part of the episode again, you'll learn what they are. Uh, uh, but the big takeaway... I got to say, I owe a huge debt to America's snack food makers. Uh, I love all of you, especially the folks over there at Cheetos. Uh, you are the engine that keeps this finely tuned machine running at top shape. Uh, big thanks to Lance from Money Manifesto for joining us on the roundtable. You can find Lance at moneymanifesto.com or we'll have a link at, on our show notes. Oh, my God. So many words. So many words. Uh, moving on. Oh, also, thanks to Aiken Fletcher, founder and CEO of Nest Egg, for showing us just how easy it can be to collect rent. You can check it out at nestegg.rent or, uh, you know, again, show notes, Stacking Benjamins. You'll figure it out. Len Penzo appears courtesy of lenpenzo.com and all of the darkness and doubt in the world. Paula. Pant appears courtesy of AffordAnything.com and AffordAnything Podcast. All the Afford Anythings. This show is created by Joe Saul Seahy, produced by Karen Rapine, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm pretty much the guy in charge of everything around here. Trust me, this well-oiled machine didn't get like this all by itself. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor.
Welcome to the after show. This is the part of the show that doesn't exist. You know, I thought it'd be fun talking about debt. I've had some pretty damn stupid debt, and I'm sure that you guys must have had. And although I don't, if anybody here, before anybody tells a debt story, let's do this. Mm-hmm. The four of us sitting here on my dad's shortwave radio, guess which person has the dumbest debt, and then everybody will tell their story. No, let's not do it that way. <laughs> Who has the least dumb debt? Well, no, then we won't tell a story. Why don't we do both? Who's got the dumbest and who has the least dumb? Yes, because I was going to say of the four of us, I think it's probably Lynn was a crazy man in a rock and roll band at one point. So <laughs> Lance seems like he he was has probably been good with money a lot. But I don't know, Paula. I think Paula doesn't have as dumb a, a story as we do. And I'm fairly certain I can beat anybody when it comes to doing dumb things with money. So Paula, what do you think? Yeah, I think that you've got the dumbest story. And I think Lance and I are probably going to be tied for least dumb. <laughs> Len? Who has the dumbest story? Yeah. Y- dumbest who's debt got story? Dumbest, who's got the dumbest, who took out the dumbest debt? You, you, but without a doubt. Thank you. I'm glad you guys have confidence. <laughs> Hands down, Joe. If there's any dumbass, it'd be you. And then, and then least, who's least? Uh, Paula. Lance? Well, after uh, Joe's mini bar story, I'm pretty sure it's Joe for the dumbest. Uh, and out of no debt involved with the mini bar. No, but if you did that, then what else could you have possibly done, right? Oh, yeah. And then uh, least dumb, not including myself, I would say Paula probably. All right. Uh, So Paula, bring it. So the only debt that I've ever carried personally is um, mortgage debt. Uh, So my rental properties plus my personal residence. Uh, So I guess of those, I would say that my personal residence is probably the, the quote unquote dumbest since a personal residence is just consumer spending, you know, and it's certainly nicer than it needs to be. But yeah, that's my story. I would love it if Paula's story ended with, I took out a three-year arm when interest rates were low. (laughs) (laughs) I I did. When we moved to uh, Las Vegas, we couldn't get a primary residence loan because they didn't believe that we were actually going to move to Las Vegas because we had so many rental properties that they were like, you're clearly buying this as an investment. And we're like, no, we're not. And they're like, yeah, you are. You can't produce a job that you have in Las Vegas. So this has got to be an investment. So they went to prove us for a primary residence loan. So we did actually have to take out an investor loan. We put it on a 3-1 arm. And then after we had spent like a year in Vegas, then refied as a primary. That was stupid, but that wasn't my fault. That was just lending requirements being super strict. I still feel pretty proud of myself that I, that I called Paula's story. Yeah, you did. I called my shot. Like, that is totally a money nerd story. What a dummy. I took out a 3-1 arm. (laughs) Uh, Lance? The only debt that I personally have had are two 0.9% car loans when savings accounts were paying more and mortgage debt. So I guess the car loans. (laughs) 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 I mean, that's... 
I got lucky. I read personal finance blogs when I was in college, and then that set me up for going forward. So, Lance said, I got lucky, and I read personal finance blogs in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> You guys are classic. So, so, so Paula brings down the three, one arm and then Lance is like, I took dealer financing once. There we go. I bought the scotch card. Time for the good stories. Let's hear the good ones. Oh boy. Len. Well, I've told the story before, so I don't really don't want to get into that. My worst debt was my house. My first house (laughs) I bought the house by the railroad track. Yeah. The the house by the railroad tracks that was, I bought on a Saturday when no trains were going back and forth, you know, it was a quiet and that, you know, and I was upside down on that house for seven years. So I was stuck living there, but you didn't Um, have like a crazy credit card, like less debt, but just a dumb credit card or something. No, I, I've never had, I'm like, Lance, I have never owed credit. I have never had to pay. I've never paid a penny of interest on anything other than a mortgage. That's it. And, uh, and a car loan. I have uh, I have taken a 1.9% car loan as well. But that's it. No, that's it. Now, if you count the time in uh, college when I had to wear a, uh, I lost a bet and I had to wear a uh, a horse costume for two days straight, then, you know, that's. It's a whole different thing. It's a different kind of debt. Yeah. <laughs> Try sleeping in that thing with the other guy. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Two days, two days straight. I thought you were still wearing it, Led. <laughs> I was. I told you. No, I'm at right now. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The uh, oh, you guys are way too easy to beat at this, man. So I picked you to win. Yeah, yeah. Mine was right in college. Like I went to the Citadel. And, um, the first week of college went to the student union called Mark Clark hall. And I walk in and they've got American express giving, like, I don't know if it was a Frisbee or a stadium blanket or something, if you took out an American express card. So of course I got in that long line and, uh, and got a credit card within (laughs) for income. I'm at a military college. I'm a cadet. There's no way in hell I can have a job. I apply for one. And of course I get it right. And so the first time they let us out on a weekend, we go out to the mall in North Charleston, me and a bunch of friends, and we go to this high-end restaurant called Ruby Tuesday. Don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> Very exclusive. When the bill came, there were like eight of us. When the bill came, I said, guys, it's on me. And I flash my green card. I'm like, I've got this cool thing called a credit card. No idea. I mean, in the back of my head, I kind of knew how it worked, but not really. I'm like, oh, I'm going to somehow magically in 30 days figure out how to pay for this thing. And then we went to Nordstrom down at the other end of the mall. And I bought this sweater, like this bad, at the time it was badass. Now it's just bad. Like this purple sweater with this uh, paisley kind of thing around that. I still have the sweater cause it's just horrible. Just as a reminder of just how bad I got into debt at the start. So I, I buy this sweater. Even then it was like 80, another freaking old guy story, Len. I'm telling an old guy story. You, so, you not my head. I'm not in my head. <laughs> I'm with you, brother. It's like an $85 sweat. I didn't even think about Number one, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. Why the hell am I buying a thick sweater? Like it's the North country. And then I'm at the Citadel. I got to wear a uniform every day and I'm buying an expensive sweater. So anyway, so 30 days later, Paula, I get this bill in the mail. The 
hell's this about? <laughs> I opened up this statement that says that I got to pay all this money back. So I did the thing that uh, that you do in that situation. You know what I did? Yes. What'd you do? Yeah, I know. You asked you for called a, credit asked for a credit raise. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I need more. <laughs> Can I get a cash advance to pay this bill I owe you? <laughs> Call it the circle of life, the circle of death. Yeah. No, I did the second best thing. I called my mom. <laughs> I said, mom, we have a problem. Mom's like, no, you've got a problem. And then she said something that was actually pretty horrible. I mean, it was horrible and it was good, but it was a huge lesson, which was figure it out. I'm like, I, I'm in a military college. She's like, well, you should have thought about that before. So anyway, within uh, another 60 days, the card was gone and my credit was destroyed. And I spent the next summer, the first month of the next summer, paying a credit collection agency. So, And that, people, is why everyone has to pay 29% interest on credit cards because of guys like Joe. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And now I hang out with you guys. Yes. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend, OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate take a look at all the military appreciation month offers and their usual offers navy federal our members are the mission navy federal is insured by ncua equal housing lender